Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Vinny Damapolito. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with the RPI players who will be giving their performance, uh, She Kills Monsters, at the Sanctuary this weekend, uh, beginning Friday. Then for the weekend labor bucket, or for this weekend's labor bucket, Willie Terry shares clips from labor singer George Mann at the 40th anniversary of the Solidarity Committee. Later on, K.P. Holler brings us information about the fiber arts market coming to the Electric City Barn. After that, Amal uh, Bergeron talks with journalist Jill uh, Kanapka. And finally, Taina Seely speaks with Jamila Sabares-Clem for this week's The Rhythm of Rebellion. But first, here are the headlines. The Times Union reports that a former Schenectady County jail guard disciplined by his bosses in 2017 for allegedly initiating sexual inappropriate conversations with a fo- female colleague is now accused in a $25 million lawsuit of raping a female inmate. The Albany County Legislature has approved extending hours for wine and liquor sales during the holiday season. The stores will be able to stay open until 11 p.m. from November 15th until January 7th instead of the normal 9 p.m. closing time. They will also be able to open an hour earlier at 8 a.m. WRGB reports that Mohawk Hudson Humane Society is once again facing a capacity crisis. The society says they're out of space with 124 dogs in the facility, but only 85 kennels. The number of animals coming in has skyrocketed while adoptions are down. The society has lowered its adoption fees. The capacity crisis has led to uh, the shelter has led the shelter to end dog control contracts with a dozen municipalities this year. We're just getting ready for the RPI players who are here with us. We're just going to get them settled down. Vinny, you want to give the introduction? Yeah. RPI Players is taking over the sanctuary this weekend for their She Kills Monsters performance. Performances are running on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And to get us excited about what's coming, we're now joined by three of the RPI Players. Welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Hi. (laughs) So, uh, what are you guys' roles for this performance coming up? Hello, my name is Mark. I'm <laughs> playing the narrator in our show, and this role you might not see on stage itself is I've also been uh, choreographing all of the stage combat for the show. Oh, nice. Um, uh, my name's Arwen. I'm the producer of the show, so I handle all of the technical elements and all of the organizational aspects of the show, including securing this lovely space. <laughs> And hey guys, my name is Janine Bauer. I am, I would say, one of the leads of the show, uh, an actor. I play a character named Agnes. And I'm really excited to be here. (laughs) So, I love the title, She Kills Monsters. (laughs) uh, What kind of uh, monsters are we going to be dealing with this weekend? We have a a lot of monsters. The... A lot of what the show pulls on is the early days of D&D. 
okay. uh, mythos, if you would. So you got your ghouls, you got your <laughs> great dragon, you've got everything you can think ah. of. The yeah. CRs are all re- being represented this weekend. Quite right. Absolutely. <laughs> right. We got a beholder, um, Tiamat, the great dragon. There's a few others, um, special appearances in there as well. It's going to be a great time. Yeah, nice. as someone who's played like a little bit of Dungeons and Dragons, there are even monsters that I didn't even know about, um, yeah. including like these things called bugbears, which are <laughs> oh. neither bugs nor bears, apparently. <laughs> or star spawn. Oh, uh, nice. creatures from beyond the stars. Yeah. Mark is our resident D&D expert of the three of us here, so. <laughs> um, <laughs> wonderful. So has it inspired you guys to play a little bit in person while practicing or not too much? We're we're given time, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know Mark runs a D&D campaign every weekend, right? I do. I have had to put it on pause a little bit for the sake of this show cycle, but <laughs> yes, I, I am a avid DM. Oh, In no. fact, uh, our team did a, um, a Tech Saturday where it was a, a full twice run or attempt at two mm-hmm. runs in a row for our show, which is a common thing for the RPI players. Mm-hmm. And my brother was having um, a reunion with my D&D group that he used to run as a DM. So I was like, I'm so sorry I can't come play Dungeons & Dragons with you because I am playing Dungeons & Dragons <laughs> with my RPI players. On stage. <laughs> nice. Uh, so uh, it's a very story-oriented thing, the Dungeons and Dragons. So what kind of a story are you guys looking to tell with this, uh, She Kills Monsters? Um, the story is sort of about uh, Agnes, which is Janine's character, going through the process of grief. At the beginning of the show, she loses her family, including her younger sister Tilly, in a car accident. Oh. So, And her younger sister Tilly loved to play Dungeons and Dragons, so... When packing up her room, Agnes finds this old module, which is like a set of instructions for D&D, if if anyone has never played. Um, She finds this old module, and she decides that she wants to play through it to learn a little bit more about her sister. Um, And I think, Janine, you can speak more on Agnes's thoughts and feelings. So um, when Mark actually was bringing up what this show was about, uh, I was in our production, our fall production, or excuse me, our spring production last uh, year, Heathers, and also helmed by lovely Arwen, who was our Veronica. (laughs) Um, And it just was like, oh, cool, it's like a D&D show. All right, awesome. And then we learned of, at least I read the script um, by uh, Ki Nguyen, and was floored by how incredibly poignant this work um, of love and loss and reconnecting to someone that you really truly didn't know through something like Dungeons and Dragons. But um, it really hits home for me because uh, Agnes really didn't understand who her sister was and it was through the loss that she starts to recognize how very little she knew of her. And it was, there's this really powerful line that speaks to me a lot because um, my, my mom lost her baby sister in a car accident at the age of 39, and we're coming up on the 15-year anniversary of that passing in the week of our show. Oh, <laughs> so it speaks a lot. It, it hits very home for me. Of um, There's a line where she talks about um, she just assumed that she would always be here to talk to, and... Yeah recognizing you know how little she how little time she actually really had with her so it's gripping you know writing really fun writing really hilarious stupid stuff that happens um, but very powerful moments as well and just 
trying to pick up the pieces and trying to know who her sister was through this process. Wow. Yeah. That's, oh, that's wonderful. So you struggle. I, I get you guys are feeling that real reality. Yeah. But how are you handling the reality versus imagination of Dungeons and Dragons for the play? Because that, I can imagine, made set dressing a little difficult. Oh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. We, especially since we're sort of a traveling theater company right now at the moment, <laughs> um, our our main concept going in, um, which was pitched by our director, Renee Roy, was that um, we are going to try and draw a harsh line where there is that harsh line between um, reality and the fantasy land that is Dungeons & Dragons. Um, we do so with little tiny set pieces, um, costuming, and especially lights. That's our, our main vehicle for making, like, um, differentiating those play spaces. Um, especially since we get to use like really cool like lighting effects um like a bunch of color and brightness when we're in the fantasy land and then the reality is sort of like mute tones like bright whites ambers things like that but that kind of shows the audience when we are in those two distinct places and there are some points in the show where we're kind of in a mixture of both um where we're in agnes's head and she doesn't know what's real or what's fake and we try our best to use all of the elements that we can to convey that to the audience. Yeah, narratively, there is a very powerful moment that I remember, Mark, when you were talking to me about what the show was, you described as being pretty much one of your favorite parts to the show, where that blend brings about a lot of narrative poignancy, like it becomes a very important part of the process. Yes, indeed. I actually had done the show in the past. I'm the one who pitched it to our theater troupe for mm -hmm. this cycle and won mm -hmm. the pitch. On the line you're speaking of is the uh, DM playing the younger sister in her own module, having to pull the DM screen saying, hey, look, this is deeper than I usually get. This is starting to feel blasphemous. I can't play this role for you. Aww. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. And <sighs> as much as the show is this big, flamboyant, <laughs> bouncing, like, stupid thing like yeah we have a lot said. of very silly very fun <laughs> yeah. like stupid things that it's happen true. there are these but moments there's where, some really powerful parts yeah where the, the dice are set down and we grapple with what the reality is yeah both yeah. in and out of the game that is one of the beauty beautiful things with dungeons and dragons where yes. you might be just sitting around a table with some friends having a silly time and all of a sudden you'll have a way too hard ethical realization. Like, do we just kill this goblin? Are we murder hobos now? <laughs> it's definitely, and those moments pop up so much throughout the show where literally like one scene you're laughing your ass off and then the next one you're literally sobbing. It's when imagination it's, gets real. Yeah, right? it's it's great. It's it's uh, The writer did a fantastic job of, mm -hmm. of putting those dichotomies together. Nice. So uh, we know it'll be here at the Sanctuary this mm -hmm. weekend, but what time are you guys uh, going to be performing? So we'll be here on the 10th and 11th, so that's tomorrow and Saturday at 8 p.m. Uh, if anyone wants to swing by, check it out. We will also be here for a matinee on Sunday at 1 p.m., so we have, you know, some varying times for people to check out. If you can't make it here this weekend, we're also um, performing next weekend at the Art Center of the Capital Region in downtown Troy, and that, those shows will be at 7 p.m. Oh, the 17th nice. and the 18th. Yes, Friday those are the 
Oh, nice. Well, I'm glad to hear you guys are going to have a matinee for some of us who might get a little afraid of Monsters in the Dark on <laughs> Sunday. So do you guys have a website where we could learn more? We do. Um, we have our RPI players uh, dot, I believe, com is the extension. Um, <laughs> a good place to find that if, if Google is being up, upset with you. We have an Instagram where most of our stuff gets funneled through, as well as a Facebook page. If you just look up um, the RPI players in either of those spaces, you will be able to find both those social media platforms, and our website is linked through both of those as well. There's also should be a form posted on the website that can let you reserve tickets if you would like to guarantee that you have a spot in our audience for the shows coming up this weekend. Oh, excellent. Well, thank you guys so much for your time. Of course. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for this opportunity. (laughs) My gosh. We appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And for the space, of course. Thank you so much to the Sanctuary for going through everything that they've had to because of our team. I know. We (laughs) We certainly... You you said you were taking over... We were taking over the space and we certainly are taking it over. (laughs) So we really appreciate all of the kindness that you guys have shown us for the past few days. Oh, it's our pleasure. Well, thank you again. <laughs> thank you. Now, back in October, roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry went on to the uh, went to the 40th anniversary of the Solidarity Committee. In this labor segment, Willie recorded excerpts from the celebration of participant speakers and labor singer George Mann. About the women, we're part of this struggle too. And uh, he says the next day, Woody tapped out the words to the union day. And uh, so uh, we're going to sing that today. You know, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union, right? There was a And we threatened to unionize at one point, and my father said, 
this isn't, this isn't where that's gonna happen. <laughs> so I, I didn't take any of his organizing seriously for 25 years afterwards. I was like, this guy is a hypocrite. <laughs> we wanted our allowances higher. We weren't vocal enough about it. We didn't get organized, that's what was wrong. But what I, what I really mean to say is after this very idyllic experience in Wilton on a subsistence farm, watching my father work uh, a seven or eight hour day, taking care of our gardens and our goats and our cows, uh, our horse, our pigs, our chickens, uh, and then he would go to work at the Times Union. He would leave at three o'clock in the afternoon, he'd be back at one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. And he was putting the paper to bed, as the old gnarled newsmen would say. And newswomen, I'm sure, but they didn't seem gnarled to me, so I wouldn't use that word. Uh, he was busy. He was a very busy guy. And it was always really cool to be part of that busyness. When we moved to Menendez, to Albany, for all intents and purposes, the real shift was all of a sudden there was this thing that had come out of nowhere uh, called the Solidarity Committee. And we were, my older brother and I, were kind of in our teenage years, 14, 15 years old, trying to kind of figure out the new landscape. You can't run around in the woods, and there isn't an endless amount of physical labor to be done, so what do you do? Well, I was a weird kid, I guess, so a lot of the time what I wanted to do was go with my dad. And he would bring me to really cool places like the Patco picket line at the Albany Airport. He would bring me to CWA. He would bring me to the Stillwater American Women Workers and show me the conditions that other workers are forced to live in. And I told you I was going to cry. What I learned is what a great human being he is. What I learned is that he doesn't just take care of us or of animals. He loves everybody. And I don't, so I really respect that. <laughs> I think people suck, but that's a whole other matter. I'm, I'm teasing. Um, but what I learned from him wasn't just from him. Uh, it was from all of you. It was from the Greyhound drivers. It was, we were just talking about Frank Rosano, you know, in our driveway, <laughs> talking to our next door, very appropriate, very, uh, very wrapped couple that lived next door to us who were older, who were upset that the driveway was being shared by a couple of kind of brusque New York City type guys who drove around in a bus. And they were upset, they couldn't get their car in the driveway, and Frank's response was, I could park a freaking bus in here. I could turn it around. There were so many cool people that we met during this whole period. And uh, I still to this day feel uh, a way about not having come back from school to eat dinner with Cesar Chavez at my father's dinner table. So I really just didn't know enough to understand what a missed opportunity that was. But my great fortune is that I've had the great pleasure of eating dinner with many of you and with my father quite frequently. And you're all just as important to the working class as Cesar Chavez is. And I thank you for that. Happy 40th birthday. You're all such good people. Thank you.
Uh, I'm proud to say that I've known Tom Ellis for quite a while, and Tom's up next with some, some remarks. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Greg. So I'm a, a newcomer to the Solidarity Committee. Um, I think I started about 1990. <laughs> so I'm a newcomer. I think I started about our youth wing. What? Our youth wing. Our youth wing. Yeah, I'm less than 70. <laughs> uh, anyways, we we did a lot of events. We did a lot of Martin Luther King events celebrations over the years at the Wilburn Temple, and then at Toast, the Thomas O'Brien Academy of Science and Technology, and then at Hackett School. And we worked with quite a diverse coalition of people to put those events on. It wasn't just a Solidarity Committee event. We worked with the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists and Lackland and uh, New York State United Teachers and quite a few community groups. And you know, I truly believe that the Solidarity Committee, what we've been trying to do, over these years, as we've been trying to build that beloved community that Martin Luther King Jr. spoke about back in the 1950s and 1960s, where we don't just tolerate each other, but we actually like each other, we love each other, and we get along, and we appreciate the value of each of us. Um, there's some other things that maybe some people here aren't familiar with it. The, during the 1990s, the Solidarity Committee, some of us used to go up to Pyramid Lake every year for a weekend, usually on the 4th of July. Yeah. And those were great events. Um, I don't know if you ever been to the Pyramid Life Center. It's in Paradox, about 90 miles north of here. And we would hang out and have a few meetings and um, a good social event where we got to know each other a lot better. And for the last 20 years, we did those events at um, the Forum of John and Stephanie, which were equally enjoyable. Um, let's see what else here. Another thing that I appreciate about the Solidarity Committee is the diversity that we've had in our, our newsletter over the years. You know, I've written articles about the, the annual conferences of the Underground Railroad, the Catering Peace Conferences, the Labor Notes Conferences, articles about the dangers of nuclear power, uh, articles in support of Palestinian rights, and articles in opposition to building power lines in Canada down through New York State, which destroyed habitat in Canada and damaged the, the property of the native peoples. I, I can't think of another newsletter that would allow a person to write articles on such a wide variety of issues. And uh, just closing here, I think that I work as a teacher and I tell my students, they said, this is the best time for workers in the United States since 1973 that when the OPEC oil embargo started in October of 73, which was 50 years ago this week, really, I think, that that was the end of the post-World War II era of prosperity for a lot of people. And it's been 50 years of really difficult times for workers. But what I like now is that workers are coming back nice and strong in this country, and we're seeing workers winning strikes and it's going to be good when the um, auto workers can get a defined benefit pension again, you know, because maybe that will lead to a lot of other workers in this country who probably never even heard of what a defined benefit pension is to start getting those too. Anyways, thank you.
If you're interested in hearing more about local labor issues, you can find more uh, stories on our website, mediasanctuary.org. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm Vinny Damopolito. Uh, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy. W-O-O-G-L-P 92.7 FM Troy W-O-O-S-L-P 98.9 FM Schenectady and W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more that you want to share with that friend at mediasanctuary.org. There will be a fiber arts market event taking place on Saturday, November 18th, 2023 at the Electric City Barn in Schenectady. To learn more about the barn and the event, we turn now to our own KP Holler. This is KP Holler reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Today with me, I have Macaulay Canizzo, Director of Membership and Operations at Electric City Barn. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, Macaulay. Hey, thank you for having me. For our listeners who don't know, can you tell us a little bit about what Electric City Barn is um, and your role there? Sure. So Electric City Barn is part of the nonprofit umbrella of Albany Barn, Inc. Electric City Barn is located in Schenectady, and we are a makerspace and co-working facility. And so we have everything from a metal shop to a print shop to a wood shop, as well as um, media lab and podcasting studio, a stage, fiber arts, uh, depending on in your interests of making entrepreneurialism, small business ownership, or creative or artistic outlets, we probably have an option for you. And it operates on a membership uh, sliding scale. So depending on your annual income, you may be able to get a discount on your membership piece, which is really great because to us as a nonprofit, we really care about how accessible our spaces are to everyone. Excellent. So you mentioned that you have um, a couple of different workshops of metalworking studio, a wood shop, printmaking, fiber arts. Do people need to come in with a skill set in those areas if they want to, say, use a space or to become a member? Or do you provide some of that training in-house? No, you can come in with 0% knowledge on any of the things I listed, and we'll give you specifically a safety and a competency training in those specialty shops, like a metal shop. Like, if you know nothing, we're going to teach you where not to put your hand so it doesn't get burned. And we're going to teach you where not to put your hand on the saw on the wood shop. Um, so you, you can come in with zero knowledge, and we'll give you that safety competency training. Uh, those are super simple to sign up for, even as a non-member. And then after that, if you're still a non-member, member and you're not sure if you want to become a member with us, um, we also offer these professional assistant hours uh, called ask hours, which with each of our specialty shops. So say you don't know anything about sewing, but you have a project at home that you want to start and you just can't get started. You can attend these different ask hours, which are all in our calendar on our website. 
And you can meet with someone that is a professional or experienced or knowledgeable person in that field. And these are totally free. Like you don't have to be a member. You can just be a member of our community, a neighbor. You can come from out of Schenectady to check it out. And you just have these conversations with these amazing artists and individuals. So there's lots of ways to kind of gain that knowledge before even becoming a member. And then once you're a member with us, there's always membership perks, like you get resources that you might not have as a non-member. You, of course, can have access to the facilities more often, um, and it really gives you opportunity to explore your independent projects. Thanks for sharing that. It seems like your members have a lot of expertise in different types of making, different skills and crafts. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some of the members maybe who are facilitating these safety trainings and ask hours? Totally. Uh, I'll talk broadly about membership and then I'll get into specifics. Uh, our membership, we're excited to say we're over 100 members now. And uh, that is anything from a general member with us, which you don't necessarily have to have a key card or pay monthly. It's just an annual fee and you can come on your day pass kind of time or monthly co-working plus membership with access to these specialty shops. Uh, and everybody in that 100 plus membership is anywhere from have no knowledge, but you have a full-time career or a full-time responsibility at home, and you just kind of want to try something. You want to try that project, want to get into a hobby. Uh, to uh, these experienced individuals for our ask hours that have small businesses in these fields, and some of them have been able to leave other full-time careers, jobs, duties, and now be able to solely work on their uh their, their career and their passion. And so one of them is Avadna Line. Uh, that's a business that operates out of our space. Uh, the owner is Pauline Sanders. Uh, she uh, is amazing and just a lovely human, but she also is so talented and so welcoming to our space and to the knowledge around fiber arts. Uh, she has kind of had some interviews about being able to make memory bags. So if you have a loved one that passed away, she can take a piece of clothing and make a purse or a tote or something useful out of it. Uh, she also got into the um, making of masks for different places uh, at the height of the pandemic. And now she operates her business out of her space. And so she vends at different markets. She does commissions, custom pieces, uh, and she's been able to explore her business in so many different ways because of these different facilities we have. She can jump to jewelry in the metal shop. She can jump to the media lab and make her website. And then she can hang out in the fiber arts market and actually do the sewing. So she's just one of so many other members. We have other members that are just hobbyists and uh, have a full-time job as a travel agent, but then want to make uh, furniture on the side kind of thing. Uh, so kind of whatever your interest is uh, making creatively, artistically, um, you can kind of find a home here. So it seems like the mission of Electric City Barn is as much about subsidizing and making it affordable for creative people to have a career um, in the arts in the capital region as it is about leaving space for folks to explore and play in their creativity. How do you bridge and make connections between those two groups um, that seem to make up your membership? 
Yeah, so we have ways we connect directly into the community where we go out to the libraries or we go out to the school district or we go out to like the green market and the farmer's markets. And so uh, we bring artists with us and they offer programs or workshops or even just demos to these different community functions away from our space. Uh, and then we also have um, different events and workshops at our space open to everyone uh, to to attend everything from learning to sew workshops or open mic nights or coming up we have a, a fiber arts market and so there's ways that we connect with community outside of our physical location as well as inside our physical location and that brings up a great point we haven't mentioned yet where your physical location is except in schenectady so the electric city barn is located at 400 craig street in schenectady and you have an event coming up. You just mentioned the Fiber Arts Market happening on Saturday, November 18th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And tell me a little bit about that event. What are some of the features if folks were to attend? What could they expect? Yeah, I'm really excited. This is our first time trying a fiber arts market, uh, especially as we get into this cozy weather. Uh, it's going to have uh, different vendors that you can walk through and, and check out. Um, some of them being our members, some of them being artists in the community. And it's all things fiber arts. So don't just think sewing. It could be painting or printing on fabric. It could be weaving. It could be felting, uh, handmade fiber materials. Uh, we have a couple artists that are dyeing wool, yarn. So there's so many different options within that fiber arts umbrella. Uh, and so in our space, we have two floors and the bottom floor will have this market going on and then the top floor will have workshops. Uh, and so we're very lucky as a, as a nonprofit to offer uh, programs like this. And we kind of wanted to do this combo deal so you can have specific instruction upstairs, but then you can also just check out some amazing items and creativity downstairs. And what are some of the workshops that are going to be included in the Fiber Arts Market event? So we have two uh, workshops planned in the Fiber Arts Market timeframe, and one of them is hosted by Pauline Saunders of Evadna Line in its custom denim jewelry. Uh, and then another one is hosted by the Albany chapter of the American Sewing Guild and its framed fabric collages. And so both deal with fabric in some way, but in very different ways. And it really shows how creative you can be with these different types of materials. It sounds like, too, both of these activities can be done using reclaimed materials. Um, so for anybody who's interested in, you know, kind of reuse or using the leftovers of materials from projects, <laughs> it sounds like this is a good way to get some ideas for that. Well, Macaulay, thank you so much for joining us here today on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'll say it again for those who may have missed it. Uh, Electric City Barn, located at 400 Craig Street in Schenectady, is hosting their Fiber Arts Market Saturday, November 18th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And where can folks find out more information if they're interested either in membership or attending a class or possibly this upcoming event? Sure. So you can go right to our website. It is ecb.albanybarn.org. And from there, you can explore all the different options, including our events calendar. You can also follow us on social media, Electric City Barn, and you'll be able to hear some updates there as well. 
Great. Well, Macaulay, thank you so much. Thank you so much. That is an exciting event, an electric event happening over in Schenectady. (laughs) And now uh, Amal Bergeron sat down with longtime journalist and current professor Jill Konopka to speak about navigating journalism in today's social media-driven society. Hello, this is Amal Bergeron with the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and I'm with Jill Konopka. Hi, Jill. Hi, Amal. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Jill Kanaka, and I am an Albany native, and I'm currently teaching a journalism class at the University at Albany, a visual journalism class. That's how you and I know each other. And then I'm also a 22-year television news reporter who is not working in the industry full-time, but I freelance in Boston, and I have been um, for going on two years now. I work full-time in public relations for a firm called Mower that is headquartered in Syracuse, and I am assigned to the Albany office. When did you first start your first journalism job? Oh my goodness, my first journalism job was not long after I graduated from SUNY Geneseo in 2002. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm actually a huge uh, SUNY fan and I love being able to teach within the SUNY system because I had such a great experience at Geneseo. I was looking for reporting jobs while I was at Geneseo. I had interned at the local ABC affiliate in Rochester, New York. And I wasn't getting on-air reporting jobs. So last minute, I heard this TV station was going to launch in Albany called Capital News 9. And I applied last minute for an associate producer position. They called me in. And that just so happens to be at 104 Waterbury Avenue Extension in Albany. And I got hired as a associate producer. Uh-huh. Which of a part did social media play in your job at the time? Oh my goodness, little to nothing. Uh-huh. I mean, this was, we live in 2023. Yeah. So this was 2002. Wow. So I was two I'm years not even old. sure that Facebook was out at that time. I don't think so it was. It like, no, I don't think it was either. I think it came out in 2007 or 2008. Wow. Um, so barely, I'm all barely anything obviously we know that that has been a game changer yeah so it, was a, it felt very fast-paced at the time uh-huh. because i was brand new to the industry but it was obviously much slower yeah and you have to understand like you're from the new york city area yeah. so new york city has a ton of news but albany is a very interesting news market as well because of the new york state legislature and albany being the capital and then all these crazy news stories happen in albany as well like really big national news stories and as you know just recently a couple weeks ago a little girl was abducted at a state park in new york state which set off massive national media coverage throughout you know the united states and beyond Uh so there's always something crazy happening in albany and we saw how much of a part social media played in the little girl's disappearance as well absolutely yes yep and then there was you know there was that push to to stop speaking her name after she had been found and was recovered in good health Uh just to protect her identity because we know as we know everything lives on the internet and so you know like news 
I saw a lot of news outlets stop speaking her name of the family, which, you know, was appropriate in that case because she is a minor and she's dealing with a lot right now. But yes, it was crazy all over social media. It was. So how much would you how much would you say uh, social media plays in your job today? Um, so working in news, yeah, people are constantly on social media. Mm-hmm. I think we've even discussed in class how Twitter is more um, a social media platform where news people live. And they're constantly checking their competition. They're constantly checking public figures to see, you know, who's dropping what new content and what new information on Twitter. But also nowadays, a lot of reporters are, are constantly checking Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram because so many news stories are generated from those different social media platforms. A lot of businesses are using those different platforms to talk about the products that they're selling or Mm -hmm. the events that they're hosting or the issues that they're getting behind. You know, like if, if you're at a synagogue right now, a lot of people will be putting out statements condemning the war right now online on their social media platforms. And then reporters, you know, they'll start their day out looking for potential news issues, stories, ideas to follow up with. And then they'll bounce a lot of things that they're seeing off of social media to the newsroom. You know, I've seen crazy stories where, you know, somebody randomly lost a piece of jewelry that was very important to them and had very much significant meaning to them. And then a reporter was able to go do a story on that and, you know, help find this item and connect it with the original owner all based on a post that they saw on social media wow. or you know a little boy or a little girl you know has been in an orphanage or uh, a home for years and years and years and they're at an age where it's tougher to adopt them out yeah that story gets shared around on social media a reporter gets wind of it they do a story and then all of a sudden that little boy or little adopted. girl it's adopted yeah Yeah. so it's constant yeah i'm always like i only freelance very occasionally in boston but i'm constantly checking social media and then even in my pr job i'm constantly checking social media on behalf of my clients yeah you know i can imagine responding to media inquiries and things like that Mm -hmm. it it really shows you the power of social media yes it's incredible Can you share some examples of how social media has influenced the way uh, news is gathered? Absolutely. So a lot of times in news, especially locally, like during my time in Albany, I'm going to use that as an example. Okay. um, we're, We're constantly getting documents from court. We're constantly getting updates. And you want to be credible and you want to be factual and have the right information. But a lot of times you also want to own the fact that you can say, you were first. Hey, this happened first on, you know, whatever news outlet it is that you're working on. Mm -hmm. So getting those documents, reading them, being thorough in going over what's important versus what's not. Mm -hmm. And then blasting that out on social media. Because as you know, a lot of people aren't waiting until those traditional news times anymore. Mm-hmm. And they're constantly watching different social media feeds and staying up to date with content and news 
gathering opportunities throughout the day, not necessarily at those traditional news times. Speaking of staying up to date, uh, how would you say you keep up with the rapid, rapid pace of social media trends and technology? Uh, I'm constantly checking a number of different news outlets so that I'm getting a different variety of news from different sources. Like, obviously, I'm looking at all the traditional newspapers, the Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, but I also look at local newspapers Mm -hmm. in communities, not just Albany, New York, but the major cities in New York State, like Buffalo, Syracuse, and Rochester as well. And then I'm staying on top of other newspapers that I've come into contact with, whether it's my full-time job, because I'm monitoring for different clients that work in different industries that I represent, or, you know, different local, hyper-local newspapers Mm -hmm. in communities across Massachusetts where I'm covering the news. Because a lot of times, super local newspapers are also covering events, ideas, different things that aren't necessarily picked up right away by the more traditional news outlets until they get wind of it. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. So, what are some ethical considerations that journalists need to keep in mind when using social media for news reporting? Oh my goodness. Not taking things out of context. Right. Right? Like, you still have to, if have video that you've shot on the seat of a story on your iPhone and somebody says something that you feel is important for your audience right out of the gates and then three minutes later they say something as well you need to make sure that you're not taking that interview in any way shape or form out of context like if you're going to chop it up you have to be very careful that you're stating you know, this is part of what they've said uh-huh. because a lot of times, like, there are restrictions on like 90 seconds that you can post versus like 30 seconds or two minutes. Right. Each app has so their... ethically, yeah. And you know, like, I always, I loved working in TV news because everything I did was basically recorded on camera. So most people couldn't say that I got it wrong because I, it was information that was gleaned in an on-camera interview and I was very quick about double and triple checking if somebody gave me information verbatim Mm -hmm. without like doing the interview I asked like 10 times just to make sure because you don't want to get it wrong right because you don't want to as soon as that happens if it happens like you lose your credibility and then your audience is like this young lady knows no idea what she's talking about or she got it wrong not going to trust her in the future and just getting things confirmed thank you so much for for allowing us to interview you jill thank you so much amal for having me always happy to speak thank you that was amal bergem interviewing local journalist and professor jill knopka uh, Tana Asili speaks with Jamila Sibers Clem, a prominent Filipina American activist, actor, and singer, currently starring as Dory slash Evelyn in the Broadway revival of uh, Merrily We Roll Along. They discuss her journey through the world of theater, as well as her work as co-founder of Justice Through Music Arts and uh, Justice Through Arts, Music, and Movement, a.k.a. JAM, which uses music and movement as powerful tools to challenge injustice and dismantle oppressive systems. 
Hi, Jamila. Thank you so much for joining the Rhythm of Rebellion today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Really, really grateful to be here. I was wondering if you could share with us a few of the pivotal moments that have influenced you on your journey to become a professional performer that intersects with activism. Well, I really think the root of all this comes from my heritage and where I grew up. I was born in the Philippines. I grew up in Manila. It's a very different land and space than here in the States. My dad's American, my mom's Filipina, and I had a very privileged life. But in the Philippines, I just remember at a very young age seeing a very stark difference between um, how people lived and the horrors and atrocities of how people are forced to live just due to where they were born. Um, mm. And so I remember that igniting something in me as, as a young person. I think, you know, children see it, you know, you don't have the words or language to understand what's happening. I didn't understand why certain people got to live certain ways and other people didn't. Mm. And so I think from that, really kind of stemmed everything else to this day. And then I came to New York to pursue, you know, the dream, the Broadway yeah. dream. And I was involved with the International Socialist Organization, which is probably the biggest impact of my political education um, that radicalized me. And we organized, we tabled, we discussed, we read together. And again, my language, my understanding grew. And so in those movements, in those, you know, organized actions, music was present, chants were present. Yeah. Yeah. So those really were the moments, yes. I think, that one, empowered me to at least try and, and, and see if, if this was possible. And two, to affirm this, I guess, deep-seated and deep-rooted want and need of mine to be a vessel through like artistry in my body and my voice mm, um, in what I believe is our responsibility as artists and just affirm that that is possible mm -hmm. to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Jamila. Oh, what a beautiful origin story. <laughs> I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about jam. What does jam stand for? What are some of the reasons you started it? And what are some of the projects and initiatives that you've seen JAM have an impact on? JAM actually was born during the pandemic. My entire industry was set. I mean, a lot of industries were shut down for, a, you know, we didn't know how long. And my collaborator, co-founder, good friend, dear friend, Alexis Roberts, she messaged me on Facebook. I had met Alexis when I first got to New York City in 2010. Um, her background is in dance and teaching, and we connected as artists. And I mean, for years and years and years, I do a lot of like, what do I really want? What do I want my life's purpose work to be? What does that look like? And um, a collective... Um, always, always came up of artists who 
can collaborate with one another to not only amplify other voices but amplify our own voices and our own our own thoughts and and be a part of that collective fight for liberation and so you know, I had all the time in the world. <laughs> and yeah. um, and uh, I, I was dabbling in, 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 in things on my own. And so when she reached out, it was just kind of prime time. It took a while for me to get back to her. She says this all the time, because I was going also through some personal things some personal heartbreaks and, and dark, dark moments. But again, it was such a gift to have this during that time, because it pulled me out of the dark a bit. And um and got me to see hope and hopefully was able to you know be be some type of a vessel or channel to to channel that 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 yeah. darkness to channel that hope to channel everything that was going on during that time and has been going on before that and grief, still that, yeah that pain yeah so, so what does JAM stand for? Yeah, it's um, justice through art, music, and movement. It's using our gifts, our voice, to fight for the world we believe in, we imagine, we believe that we can build for each and every being. It was born through that. I had these songs that I, I loved so much, that I loved to sing, that meant so much to me. So our, our first really project that we did it was it was really it was a dream it was like a passion project you know mostly for us to create or recreate music with movement um, that we felt needed to be heard and uh our first project was um cover of the song called echo by sweet honey in the rock mm. which is such an incredible i mean one of the most incredible songs and you um, do such a beautiful job with it. Oh, I mean, thank that video you. and the, the singing. I mean, it, the movement. Yeah, mm. we worked really hard, and so I, we called upon our other friend, artist friends, to kind of just see who wanted to to be a part of it. And through that, we've been asked to create songs for certain, you know, days of action. We also have produced a song that we were working with a friend and. It was kind of like a song of of who we are and why we do this called For the Love. Again, we collaborated with visual artists, singers, dancers, just anyone who wanted to, to be a part of it. That's really what the basis of this is. Who wants to join? Any voice, all voices. <laughs> um, what's your gift? Which is kind of what it's about because we need one another. We were able to actually perform at Union College in Syracuse, which was really beautiful, and then have, you know, discussions with the young people about, you know, intersectional feminism. And mm. um, for me, I always think that being in conversation, especially with young people and learning from one another is probably one of the most, you know, impactful work one can do. Absolutely. For folks listening, you can check out the videos on their YouTube page. Could you share some advice that you would give to that next emerging artist who aspires to use their creative voice for positive change and social impact? Yes, I think first and foremost, use it. Use your voice any chance you get, any way you can. The systems that keep us oppressed are loud and strong. So we must be louder and stronger. And there is so much power 
in the collective and the collective needs every voice and every person. Yeah, don't be afraid to use it or use it even when you're afraid. Yeah. We're taught this narrative of it has to look good, it has to sound good, it has to, you know, be all these things. I just put so much pressure on myself, so much pressure to sound perfect, to, to sound, you know, the right notes, mm -hmm. not be off tune, not crack, all these things. And whenever I, I get paralyzed with fear, I always go back to this passage, Audre Lorde, and she has this mm. essay called The Transformation of Silence into Language and Action. I've come back to this so many times to get my perspective back on again why I do this work. And she says, I have come to believe over and over again that what is most important to me must be spoken, made verbal and shared, even at the risk of having it bruised or misunderstood. Each of us is here now because in one way or another we share a commitment to language and to the power of that language and to the reclaiming of that language which has been made to work against us. In the transformation of silence into language and action, it is vitally necessary for each one of us to establish or examine her function in that transformation and to recognize her role as vital within that transformation. Yeah, that kind of puts things into perspective for me, especially for the young people who, who are listening. It is vital for each and every one of us to use our voice. We need you. We need your voice. We need your gifts. It is vital for our collective liberation. So really, I encourage you to use it. It is beautiful. It is powerful and it is necessary. Mm -hmm. I love that. Listen to the full episode of this podcast at therhythmofrebellion.com. And thank you, Taina Asili, and thanks to Moses Nagel for editing, for editing support on this series. And that is our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Vinny Damopolito. We want to thank all of our volunteers who helped make this episode possible. Contributors to today's episode were Willie Terry, K.P. Holler, Amal Bergeron, and uh, Tina Asili and Moses Nagel. We appreciate you listening. Until next time. Thank you.